you have a very weird pastor. <laughs> we are probably in the only chapter in Mark that I've been the most reluctant to preach, chapter 13. And I would appreciate your earnest prayers as I go through this. It's a tricky chapter. There's a lot of different views. My prayer is that I allow Scripture to preach for itself, and I allow the Holy Spirit to speak for himself in this chapter. As such, to make sure, for me, I'm allowing Scripture to preach for itself, I've seen it as helpful to have a key verse for our time in Mark chapter 13. And that is a summary statement that Jesus gives about all the things that I believe he is saying in Mark 13. That's Mark 13, verse 30. Truly, Jesus says emphatically, I, that is Jesus, say to you, and as of Mark 13, verse 3, that would be Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He says, this generation, which is the contemporary generation of Jesus, Peter, James, John, as the case of every other time Jesus says that phrase, in the gospel accounts, and on your outline I have all those references, Jesus says, they will not pass away, they will not die until all, definite word there in the Greek, meaning everything, the totality of these things that take place. So Jesus says, I believe in Mark 13:30 that everything he mentions will take place within the lifetime of his contemporary generation. I take that as a very literal and plain reading and understanding of that verse because it's Hopefully never my intention to contradict Scripture. That's how I will preach this passage. I'm not saying you have to agree. <laughs> I'm just saying that as for my sermons in Mark 13, I'm preaching what I perceive to be the most easiest and faithful to Scripture, and it's inerrancy and interpretation. That's, that's the interpretation I take. That's my first preference. Second preference, that whether you view our chunk in Mark 13 today, verses 9 through 13, as fulfilled in the first century A.D. or something to be fulfilled in the future, I think you will find that the majority of these verses, I think all but really one verse that we're looking at today, they are true any day and every day for a Christian. And I will show you that throughout the Bible. And that Jesus not only uses these scriptures as applicable for the time he's talking about, but elsewhere throughout the scriptures, Jesus speaks about these things in a way that makes them applicable in all of the Christian life. And that makes this section for me easier to preach, and likely, if any of you have this big distraction of, I disagree with your overall interpretation, hopefully it will be less problematic for you today. Because being a follower of Jesus, Jesus has already told us, will mean persecution. Jesus has said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and that picking up of the cross is a reference to the stigma of being a cross-bearer. If you were in first century and you carried a cross, people knew what you were doing. You were going to your grave. So that is a reference to the scrutiny you will experience from the world. Nevertheless, Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is prophesying on the Mount of Olives, likely the Tuesday before what we call Good Friday, uh, that day of the cross. He is prophesying of the persecution of his disciples, and it images and it reflects actually with Jesus' own persecution that he's about to experience. To get our study of verses 9 through 13, though, in context, I invite you to stand with me, and let's read from Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. Thank <clears throat> you. 
And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it, will, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not come before anything lightly as we look into your scripture. Father, these are words that we believe your Holy Spirit inspired the writing of. These are words that we trust the Holy Spirit is faithful to interpret and speak to us today. Father, we pray for soft, receptive hearts in all of us. We long to hear your voice. I long to hear your voice. Father, I'm in desperate need of your grace. I'm in desperate need of your wisdom. And Father, if we gather today to not hear your voice, we have failed. And so I pray that you would speak to us, encourage us, comfort us, convict us. Whatever you wish to do, have your way in us. And may all of us be receptive. May all of us have soft hearts to hear your voice. Father, may we hear your gospel today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Though we are in large part in Mark 13, the most debated and the most clearest time of Jesus' prophesying or predicting the future, let us not forget the last time that Jesus had plainly prophesied in the book of Mark. And that is his third and final prediction of his rejection, betrayal, death, and resurrection. And he gives a rather frightening pronoun in it, for in Mark 10:33, Jesus says, See, we, you see that collective pronoun there, that Jesus is including his disciples. And he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus was insinuating, you will be a part of this. See, we. So much so that in Mark 10:39, a few verses later, Jesus says plainly, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. The cup I drink, you will drink. We go back to Mark 13, 9. But be on your guard, 
for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings and for my sake to bear witness about them. And again, as I mentioned in our text, it is what is called Passion Week. Jesus is really two to maybe two days and a half away from being brought before the high priest, being brought before King Herod, before Pontius Pilate. Jesus is about to be delivered to councils, beaten in synagogues, and stand before rulers. A quick reading, or perhaps a thorough reading of the book of Acts, specific examples in your outlines, testifies that Jesus' words come to pass exactly as he said they would for his immediate hearers, namely Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But as I said, furthermore and more generally, we know that these words of Jesus have daily and very general implications. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord has read for us today, and, and John says over and over in his book, The world hates me, says Jesus. It will also hate you. We see repeats of the disciples' fates that Jesus is prophesying about, and actually many ages of the world. In uh, persecutions of the state church over sects who claim to be practicing a more primitive Christianity throughout the Middle Ages, we, we see persecution actually brought on also by Protestants whenever they became the state church and they prosecute or persecuted other Reformed people or Protestants. But we also see persecution today of Christians on a state level and a terrorist level. For sure, Jesus is making a prediction here to his immediate hearers that did come to pass. But for Christians of all ages, I believe it is still necessary, uh, a necessary command, in short, to be on your guard, says the ESV. I believe the ESV, as well as many Bible translations, did not do its best here. <laughs> because that first word in this phrase we've talked about a few weeks ago when Jesus said, beware of the scribes. That word beware is the first word in this phrase. Last week, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. That word see is the same word here. <laughs> it's this idea of spiritually discerning, of perceiving and seeing if you measure up. And so Jesus is in essence saying, measure the faith you have. <laughs> Be certain in your own mind of your allegiance to me. Because it's going to bring you persecution. Adversity is the norm for Christians. And I don't know uh, about you, but I can definitely see that that is precisely the case. Because the closer I get to King Jesus, the more distance and the more quarrels I seem to be putting in between me and people who have not accepted Jesus as their king yet. We move on to a very tricky verse. <laughs> and perhaps a favorable verse of those who see this section of scripture as a future realization, not a first century one. Jesus says... And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. If you read through the book of Romans, you, you, got, you start to understand that Paul is actually answering many arguments in his mind. He says, what shall we say then? Or he will say, some will say this. So some of you, some people who see this as a future fulfillment, will look at this and say, so Kevin, by 70 AD, did the gospel make it to America? 
to Australia, to China? Did it go to all the nations? If you say all nations is not literal, Kevin, then that deviates from the so-called literal plain approach you claim to be taking. We all must admit to a dilemma no matter what view we take. Because in context of Mark 13, Jesus opens with a comment on the fall of the temple. Mark 13, 1 through 2. His disciples ask him when that event and events surrounding the fall of the temple will occur. Mark 13, verse 4. We're in the middle of what I think logic would tell us Jesus' answer to that question, a prophecy of the events encircling the fall of the temple. With a time constraint, so says Mark 13, 30, Jesus says all these things, that all there is the same word for the all here in all nations, will come to pass within this generation. And so I wonder if we see this dilemma. We have time constraints, but we also have this one prophecy that seems to be, could be a future fulfillment. Here is one possible solution. Jesus is referring to the end of the world, and we're missing something, or the Bible seems a little misleading, or we can appeal to the mystery of God or some other error, and how to properly interpret when it comes to Jesus' time constraint statement. Does that make sense? Second, second uh, option we might be able to take. Jesus is referring to the end of the world and was simply mistaken in his Mark 13.30 time constraint statement. What's then by definition, Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet, Jesus is not a true prophet. <laughs> Which, then that would cause us to question Jesus in a much more important way than him just making a slight boo-boo at his prophesying. Third option we can take. Jesus is referring to 70 A.D. primarily as the beginning and the end of this chapter really seems to strongly suggest to me. But in Mark 13:9, about the gospel being proclaimed in all nations is an error or a false prophecy, which ends with the same dilemma that option B does. Or, finally, we have an option D. We can say that Jesus is talking about 70 A.D. primarily. This statement in Mark 13:9 about the gospel being proclaimed in all the world can fit into a broader interpretation with a little scripture comparison of similar phrases throughout the New Testament about the gospel being preached to all nations. Guess what option I'm going to go with? I'm going to go with option D, and I'll show you how. To do that, though, I'm going to take you over to Colossians 1. And the reason I'm doing this, friends, is not to just prove my point. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing this because I want you to see that with a Bible in your hand, a little understanding of first century history, hard passages do not need to be hard and ambiguous. Neither do you and I need to be prophets when interpreting this. We just need to believe the final prophet at his word. Does that make sense? And if, as I believe, Jesus is prophesying about the years leading up to 70 A.D., we have the rest of the Bible, of the Gospel accounts, to cue us in into those years that Jesus is prophesying about. As such, Colossians is written in that 40-year span between Jesus' prophecy and 70 A.D. by an apostle named Paul, who calls himself an apostle, just one untimely born. This is important. Paul sees himself as authoritative, as one of the original twelve. And unmistakably, we see throughout Acts and all of Paul's writings, he is humble about it, but he's not in low self-esteem. <laughs> and as with the original twelve, so was Paul, we know, taken into synagogues, beaten and persecuted and such. 
And Paul is writing the church in Colossae in likely the late 50s, the early 60s. And as he opens all of his letters in Colossians 1, he lists who is writing, to whom it's to, with a thanksgiving and prayer to God, wishing grace and peace to his hearers. But then listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 3 through 6. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up through you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as also does among you, since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth. Interesting, Paul says the gospel with which the hearts of the Colossians has also come to, quote, the whole world. The original word for world, cosmos, universe, bearing fruit and increasing. If you drop down to verse 23, he encourages the Colossians to, quote, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed where? In all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. That word all, a definite word there, every kind, totality. The gospel has come to the whole world and has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So is Paul saying that missionaries were headed to Canada already? That the, uh, the natives over here in America, after all, they had seen Jesus, as the Mormons say, uh, that the aborigines in Australia, why, that's where Barnabas and Mark were going to. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a second. I just want to give you one other example, though. Remember the day of Pentecost. Uh, pretty quickly after Jesus' ascension, the disciples are gathered in the upper room. What happens? The Holy Spirit pours out on them. And they began speaking in languages of other people's gathered. Look at what Luke records in Acts 2, 4 through 5. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Hmm. Devout men from, quote, every nation under heaven. So the Russians were there, and the Britons were there, and the South Africans. No, nope, actually, if you go down a few more verses, 9 through 11, Luke decides to give a quick rundown of the peoples there, and you find out that not literally every nation under heaven was there. And that's my point. My point is, is the question is, is, is there a safe and understandable reading of Jesus' words of the gospel going to all nations in a regional sense in his prophecy? In other words, if we were to accept Mark 13, 1 through 4, and Mark 13, 30 as the time parameters of Jesus' prophecy, namely the destruction of the temple and the generation of his immediate hearers, can we accept that as Jesus meant it, that the gospel had been proclaimed in some sense to all the nations, as Luke verifies in Acts 2 and as Paul verifies in Colossians 1, same phrases that they use. Now you can might say, well, well, Paul and Luke were, were being a little bit figurative, but Jesus is being specific. And I'm to say, who are you to judge who's being specific and figurative? And if you want to take Jesus at his word literally, I would also say take Paul and Luke at his, their words literally as well. The gospel says, says Jesus in Mark 13, will be proclaimed to all nations. And the gospel, so says Luke and Paul, whom we also take as divinely inspired and, and inerrant, and rightly so, has been proclaimed as of their writings to all nations, every nation under heaven. 
simply because our 21st century Western lenses that we know for a fact that it wasn't preached to China, India, or USA at the time of their writing, doesn't make their first century Jewish and Greek lenses and writings wrong, incorrect, inaccurate, or false. Does that make sense? By the time Mark is writing his gospel, Mark is writing to Rome, which was believed to be the center of the world, because it was for them. We leave verse 10, which required a lot of end times application and interpretation. We come to verse 11, to which we know from other scripture has applications for every Christian at any time under any trial or demanding situation. Jesus says, and when they bring you to trial and to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. First, we see fulfillment of this everywhere in Acts. <laughs> if you just actually turn over to Acts chapter 4, the first time Peter is questioned by Caiaphas, the same high priest who was questioning Jesus, Luke tells us that before Peter responds, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit before he said what he said to them. The Holy Spirit is so evident in Peter's response that Luke records in Acts verse 4.13 that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. You read through the rest of Acts 4, they were released, and then they pray to God and they ask for more boldness. At the end of Acts 4, we see Peter praying, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I looked through all of Acts, I probably even missed some parts, but on your outline, I emphasized a bunch of places where I think this is fulfilled in Acts. I would emphasize chapters 21 through 28, about, the minute, um, about Paul's witness before courts <laughs> as a glaring fulfillment. But as I said, not only will this verse find fulfillment in which the time I believe Jesus is talking about, but we, we remember in John as he talks about, as Jesus talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he talks about it very similarly in the general ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And here we find promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit teaches us things, and he brings remembrance to us the things that Jesus has taught us. Jesus said in Mark 13, when his disciples are brought before trials to not be anxious, because Jesus promises what he promises generally about the Holy Spirit, he promises specifically about the moments where they might need to speak. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit one chapter later, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says that it is the Holy Spirit that causes us to bear witness about him in a general sense. I think of Acts, again, especially where Paul is bearing witness to judges and rulers he's on trial with. He's giving them the gospel message every time they talk to him. We go over one more chapter, chapter 16 of John. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. 
for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit still teaches us. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us. And he does so in a God-glorifying manner, so says Jesus. So again, both general implications of that verse in Mark 13, as well as obvious specific implications in Jesus' prophecy. But we move on. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This is another consequence of being a general disciple of Jesus that Jesus said would be lived out rather specifically in the time he's prophesying about. It is a verse that primarily informs the title of my sermon today. Because the verse should be a little familiar to you if you know your scriptures. Unrelated to this Olivet Discourse in Matthew or in Luke, are recorded these words, which I will share from Matthew 10. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Very hard words. Hmm. I'm going to try to make it easier for you. What Jesus is saying is that following him produces the division. The sword that he's talking about. Division and his sword are not the object nor the pursuits of his disciples, but the results and the consequences of it. We see this in a religious convert, such as converts from Islam. We know that should an Islamic daughter accept Christ Jesus, not only as her Savior, but also as Lord, Sovereign, Supreme, what he says she does, she then has caused a sword between her and her family, lest her family repent and accept Christ too, because of her allegiance to Christ. Christ has now turned parents against children. So it is in times of persecution, such as the persecution of first century Christians would face and persecutions in all times face. I've heard this story several times from my dad, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but I believe it was in the Soviet Russia era where soldiers came into a house, an underground Bible study, and the soldiers came with weapons in hands and they declare, okay, all of you who profess Christ, stay here. Others of you, this is your chance. You either denounce Christ or you stay and face the consequences. A few of them get up and leave. And after they left, those in the Bible study who are willing to face the consequences, they hear from the soldiers, now that all the true Christians are here, let's do church. We realize it's not always that good of a story or a story ending. When Jesus actually calls, but also Jesus, I should say, actually calls his disciples his family. We see that in Mark 3. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We realize that within his 12 disciples, there was a deceitful poser as a brother named Judas, who betrayed and delivered Jesus over to his death. It's not a stretch to suppose that Jesus is referring to likely both physical blood families and spiritual families as he laid out in Mark 3. 
No doubt there are accounts in 1st century AD. We read from Tacitus describing the persecution under Emperor Nero in 64. He says that those who confessed that they were Christians were first arrested, and then, upon their disclosures, many other Christians were further arrested. We talk about that story in Soviet Russia and the calmness of our Woodland Friends meeting house. But when the going gets rough and if we're in that situation with guns pointed, what would you do? What would I do? Would we sell out? Would we betray brethren? I hope and pray not. I haven't been there yet, though. <laughs> Continuing on with the rough image of a sword and the sharp consequences of being a disciple of Jesus, the last verse we studied today in Mark 13, it says, And you will be hated for all my name's sake. Hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Dolores read for us earlier in John, that if the world hates us, know that it hated Jesus before it hated us. We realize this, that Jesus tells his disciples about the future, but he's going to, in a matter of hours, likely two digits, a number of hours, be betrayed by Jesus, be left alone by not-so-loyal disciples, mocked and hated by the Jews, treated indifferently by the Romans, which leads to his gruesome death on the cross. Friends, Jesus is hated. Why is Jesus hated? Why are followers, or why can followers of Jesus expect to be hated? Jesus says in John 7, 7, The world hates me because I testify about it. Its works are evil. Some of you might say, well, that's rather harsh, Jesus. The word testify merely means bears witness to. In other words, Jesus has just said, the world hates me because I tell the truth to it. If you think about it, even within the context of Mark 13, why is Jesus ticking people off? Because he's calling out everyone for their sin. He comes to the temple and says, you're a bunch of greedy hypocrites using religion like a business. He says about the temple leadership, you're not leadership material, your days are numbered, God's taking the vineyard from you. Jesus says about the scribes, they're a bunch of pompous, arrogant hypocrites. And what Jesus is doing is he's judging because he's God and his judgments are merely diagnosis. Why? So people can repent. So people can overcome their sins. So people can confess and say, you are correct. That's what confess means. It merely means acknowledge. You are correct, Jesus. I have sinned. Save me. Because you and I know this. It is a very hard day every time a doctor reports. The, doc, the reports came back positive. You have cancer, and your days are numbered. It's hard to hear, but it's true, and we would like to hear it so we know what we can do, we know what to expect. Why is it then when the spiritual doctor says, take a look in the mirror? You are in sin, and you need a Savior. That people react in hatred. All Jesus does as the pure judge is testify at what he sees. And unlike any religion, Jesus offers a way out through him. Not through hard work and self-loathing, but through trust in Christ and self-surrender. Trust in Jesus and self-surrender. <clears throat> That's why the disciples recite over and over in Acts, We're all guilty of crucifying Christ. This man whom you crucified died for you. 
And many repent and become saved. But the same snarky, self-righteous people who can't stand to be offended by truth take the disciples into courts and manipulate people to hate them. Jesus says, they hated me and they'll hate you. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word saved there is used principally in the Bible of God rescuing believers from the penalty and the power of sin. You see, what, what the world does out of evil, Jesus redeems it for good. James, writing during the same time of persecution, James writes, James 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be a perfect and mature Christian, complete, lacking in nothing, you will be saved. We zoom out from this passage and we follow the thought process. I see a double-edged sword of Jesus, because on one side we have eternal peace, we have our sins forgiven, we have reunion with God, we have been given access to God Almighty. But Jesus, largely talking about persecution in this passage, we see what that gains us in this life often. We, we see what it gains the disciples and the peers of Jesus in his contemporary generation. We see what it often gains Christians of many generations. And that last verse says we are to endure under this persecution. We are to endure in order to be saved. We are to endure, in other words, remain steadfast and allegiant to the gospel. The author of Hebrews was also writing during a time of persecution. And in large part to a group of Hebrews who, under this persecution, was tempted to revert back into Judaism. Why? Because as Christians, Jews hated you, and Romans hated you, and the world hated you, because the world hated Christ. Because what Christ said is true, and sometimes the truth offends us. So if these Hebrews reverted back to Jews, they can be Jewish again, not hated and not persecuted. The author in Hebrews 4 encourages readers to strive to enter the eternal rest promised to us by placing our trust in Christ. Friends, in times of persecution, it's important to remember that this place is not our home. That we are a family of God awaiting to come to the eternal home of God. So there is this two-sided sword. On one side, the rest and peace granted to us, but on the other side, the persecution and the hatred and the stigma of, of Christ and his people. And the author in Hebrews writes, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. I come to the end of this sermon, and here I was last night typing away, gee, how do I wrap this up? <laughs> right? You'll be betrayed by authorities, you'll be betrayed by family members, you'll be hated by the world. All right, head home. So often, and so Americanly, if I can use that as an adjective, and so worldly sometimes, I think it's my job to sell you the gospel. It's not. It's my job to tell you the truth. And that regardless of all this stigma that it brings you, it nevertheless remains true. 
I have to give an account to God for my sins, for my deeds. The world will end, and if any of you back off from discipleship in Jesus, if any of you aren't saved, if you back off from Jesus for the sake of comfort in this world, you will find that your deeds are not hidden from God. But you will be naked and exposed, and you will give an account to Jesus. So it is my encouragement to you to endure. Endure. Let the sword of God, the word of God, pierce your soul. Never stop repenting. Never stop believing. Never let the world, the enemy, draw you away from the eternal life that is in Christ Jesus. No other water is living. No water will quench like Jesus. No food will satisfy like Jesus. Nothing will fill your God-shaped hole except God himself, Jesus Christ. So if you find yourself in the middle of a trial, if you ever get tired of being a Christian and the stigma it brings you, if you ever have worldly-minded people and acquaintances mocking you and saying, why do you believe that? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, Jesus saves you, Jesus redeems you, and Jesus keeps redeeming. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word today and we open it up and we want to hear a word from you. I'm grateful that you tell us the truth, even if it hurts, because that means you think we can handle it. And Father, as we handle it and we come before you before your cross, and if any of us feel guilty, if any of us wonder, why did you say this to us? Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts. Bring about fruits of repentance. Let that conviction do its desired effect, produce steadfastness in us. Father, help us by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to be more perfect and more complete. Father, if any of us in here come today and we do not have that living water, we do not understand the bread of life, we do not, we do fill that hole in our lives and we've been trying to fill it with something. Father, today, would you help us to repent, to accept you as our Lord and Savior, to move forward in Christ, saved and redeemed, adopted a child of God, loved by you, all sins taken away through Jesus, and all sins past, present, and future, if we continue to bring them to you, wiped clean because of what you've done for us. Father, you've made us for communion with you, and you've made us for communion with your body, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for that. That is the greatest gift in the world. Father, we love you. We thank you. 